Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host, as always, Chris McDaniel, a political reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me, Jason Rosenbaum of the St. Louis Beacon. And Joe Manis of the St. Louis Beacon. And we are feeling pretty nostalgic here today because we are starting off the show with a story about Todd Aiken, Claire McCaskill. The, the A Block is back. <laughs> the A Block's back. Yeah, for, just temporarily. And I, I know you've been aching for an Aiken story, so yes. <laughs> so we'll toss you one. Speak for yourself. <laughs> so it turns out that the NRSC might have changed their mind a little bit about giving money to Aiken. Or the National Republican Senatorial Committee. Well, that's correct. Yeah, but they really they didn't give the money directly to Aiken. I mean, in fact, I had a story last weekend because I so far I think I'm still the only reporter who got a copy of his full report. Um, and anyway, I got it through a source last weekend, along with McCaskill's summary pages. And the bottom line was that um, Aiken got about there was a seven hundred sixty sixty thousand from this group but it didn't go to him it went to the state gop who then gave it to to, an ohio-based media firm right but they didn't uh spend it on tv ads Mm -hmm. he also got money i mean there was also other money um spent on his behalf um about uh 1.8 million altogether he got from i mean on his behalf, was spent by various groups. But if you go to the Federal Communication Commission website, you can now look up each TV station and see these are the broadcast stations and see uh, their their political files. You no longer have to go down there and sign in and do all that stuff. And the bottom line is that I could find no evidence that there was any independent TV ad spending spent on his behalf, and there hadn't been for several weeks. So this money that was to help him out was basically covertly, and some of it went to this Ohio firm that had been helping him all along. And uh, but he didn't. There's no evidence that he spent it on TV ads. His his he his had a lot TV, of robocalls on the yes. last week. Yeah, yeah. He had. A, I got at least three at my house. Because, targeting what? Some of them were targeting Jonathan Dine, which kind of showed which kind of showed how dire of a situation he was in. If he had to, to, but that's a whole other story altogether. Yeah, yeah. But the libertarian candidate. But yeah, I got at least, as I said, several at my house. But um, he. I thought it was interesting that when you look at this, when you see that his spending on TV ads, he and allied groups, and again, there was virtually none from allied groups on TV, is that, Mc, that McCaskill and her allies were out spending him on TV like six and seven to one. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you were seeing that many spots before you saw any sort of pro Aiken spot. And the pro Aiken spots were all aching, Aiken spots. They were not allied spots because the allied groups, as Chris is saying, what, the only thing we can – because you, you can't verify exactly how it was spent, but the strong indication is that it went for um, these robocalls because he spent a lot on robocalls. That has been – in some ways, that's how he won the primary is that he spent a lot of robocalls. So the idea is you robocall identified Republicans or people on mailing lists um, – I'm on mailing lists for both sides because I don't take any freebies. So if I'm covering a, dem- a Democratic dinner out in the middle of nowhere, 
I'll pay the 35 bucks for the dinner. And so then you end up on their list. And I've done that for the Republicans probably, you know, ages ago. And so I'm on both of their lists. And so you get these robocalls. So at least you have a sense of uh, what's going on because you're on some mythical list somewhere. Mm-hmm. Now, now the spending for her, again, uh, the Sunlight Foundation, which is an independent group, but actually had gone through and gotten a lot of these FEC reports quickly, faster than some of the other non, non, nonpartisan groups, is that the the pro-McCaskill spending was just under $1.6 million. Actually, there was more pro-Aiken spending than pro-McCaskill spending. But what did him in was the anti-Aiken spending, mm-hmm. which was um, huge. I mean, the bulk of it, in other words, there was a close to $7 million that it's documented was anti-Aiken TV ads. And that should surprise nobody. Because after the legitimate rape comment, Republicans who wanted them out were basically going to say, if he stays in, he's going to be subject to a tsunami of these ads. And he and was. It, and it turns out that was exactly what happened. So, Well, it would have been balanced out if a lot of those Republican groups like the National Chamber of Commerce and others had stayed in. Because actually they had spent about $1.2 million against McCaskill early in the year. By supporting Bruner, though. Yeah, some of it by supporting Bruner, some of it by supporting Bruner but jabbing her in the same ad. Exactly. And but after the illegitimate rape thing, they they didn't come back. I mean, the assumption is that they were going to do what they did in 2010, where right around Labor Day, all of a sudden the tsunami of ads uh, against Robin Carnahan by the National Chamber and others just filled the airwaves. I remember uh, watching uh, TV news and and doing a count. And counting six to seven to one, just in one half hour spot. Well, yeah, and but and and I think that did contribute at least to the margin of her loss to Roy Blunt. Well, if Todd Aiken's strategy near the end was robocalling, I I I don't mean to, you know, dance on an already mound of criticism, but that probably showed that his campaign wasn't nearly sophisticated enough for. A U.S. Senate bid because that's typically not indicative of of, of a U.S. Senate race. Yeah, that's right. more something that you do in a congressional or a smaller district. Yeah. Statewide, that can be dicey. Now, I think I think they saw that well, he won the primary, and that that helped him win the primary from their perspective in a three way primary. So they see that it might work in a general. But what works in a primary? when you're dealing with all of one universe, all the Republican universe, mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily work when you're dealing with everybody, including these alleged swing voters in the middle that almost totally went for her. The bottom line was, though, they both ended up in debt. Uh, McCaskill her, is 238000 right. Aiken is almost 270000 270, right. Yeah. And the problem for Aiken is who's going to give him money now after he right. lost so badly? I think people will probably give to McCaskill right. to pay off that debt because she's going to be in office for six more now years. Now, that's actually a small debt for both sure. both candidates for a Senate race. I've oh, seen yeah. debts in the millions. Now, I think the overall figure, though, we need to point out is that she spent $19.3 million. Yeah. And he spent about five point five million, mm-hmm. so she outspent him almost four to one. So uh, I mean, that's just her forgetting these outside groups that we were, we were just talking about. Right. So um, he was in an extreme disadvantage. Now his report did show that Jim Dement, the uh, soon outgoing uh, powerful senator from South Carolina, did direct. Um, 
about 270,000 in other donations to um, Aiken. Uh, the report was kind of convoluted. It was difficult to read, but the bottom line was that they would earmark next to the donor a separate entry with the Senate uh, Conservatives Fund. And at first it looked like they were just reporting direct donations from them. But actually what the Aiken Camp told me later was, was that that referred to the donation right before so that Basically, they were pointing out to the FCC which ones had been directed, had, had been basically bundled uh, by DeMint. DeMint had sent over the checks, but uh, they said they uh, needed to designate to the FEC which ones had been done so. Now, Joe, uh, Missouri House Speaker Tim Jones has been going on a speaker's tour, but uh, from what I read from yours, your, from your story, <laughs> it, it might be a lieutenant governor's tour. Well, yeah, actually, the the it, it's always refreshing when a candidate of either party at least is up front with what their uh, aspirations sure. are. I mean, yeah. especially when they're up front to you, a reporter. Anyway, <laughs> he um had he ended his four day speaking tour around the state mm-hmm. with a gathering at his new. Um, District office, which and, and, he, and yes. he's been doing this to sort of you know set the stage of what Correct. what what is going to take place in the in the Missouri right, House. Right, right, what uh, issues he's going to push. Uh, a lot of these they've had individual um, uh, either supporters, in some case just local business people. In this one, it was mainly supporters, fellow uh, officials like uh, outgoing State Senator Jane Cunningham was there. Uh, the mayor of Eureka was there. A bunch of other people, including Tim Jones's very youthful-looking mother, who I met, <laughs> very nice lady named Joanne Jones, and and several people who, by the way, are fans of the podcast who came up. Amazing. To- <laughs> we, we 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 go all the way down to Eureka, which is. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So shout I, out to Eureka. Shout so out to Eureka. I didn't Six Flags. To, I didn't mean to segue to that, but anyway, <laughs> I I was talking to the speaker and um, he acknowledged there had been rumors of this. There there had been some rumors on Twitter the last few days. Sure. Uh, to be fair, and he acknowledged that he is looking at the lieutenant governor's seat if Lieutenant Governor Peter Kinder, a fellow Republican, if he does succeed in winning the nomination to fill the 8th District State's U.S. congressional, congressional seat, seat. Yeah. now held by Joanne Emerson, but who plans to leave office in early February to take a high-powered uh, job as head of a national uh, association that represents rural electric cooperatives. And um, now there's various people, including outgoing GOP Executive Director Lloyd Smith, who's looking at this, and he's a former, he's a longtime Emerson ally. But Kinder has also said he's looking at it. And but there has been controversy, as we've talked about before. Jason's talked about before, and whether or not the lieutenant governor, if there's a vacancy, if that can be filled by the governor, it has been filled several times in the past. But there are some who say that no, the way the the way the Constitution's worded, it actually should be either an election. Or left vacant. And, and what was interesting was Jones was saying, well, we can pass a law that says. That oh, yeah. Exactly. Can, Absolutely. Exactly. And they actually already have. I, I believe they passed some version of that law, but it was vetoed. 
it was, I think, bundled in changing the primary, and that was right. one of the reasons it was vetoed, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yes. But now they yeah. have a veto-proof majority. So. Well, if everybody's if, if everybody's, everybody's on board. Si- if everybody's on board with yeah, it. and I can't imagine any Republican would vote against this, even if they dislike Peter Kinder immensely. I don't think they want to lose the lieutenant governorship automatically. Right. That'd be my guess. I could be wrong, though. But but there's a danger there. Okay. I mean, just looking at it. Okay. The Democrats won every statewide office on the ballot except that one and there's a danger if it's up for a statewide vote i mean potentially although although republicans as a rule often do better in special elections because they're more regular voters right um in a statewide vote potentially depending on who the democrats would put up the democrats might be able to snag it yeah, that way if they put up a really strong candidate like the name like clint clint's wifel's name has been put up or, or or let's just say chris coster both of those people are very popular. Or someone like Robin Par- Carnahan. Exactly, who, exactly. Robin Carnahan. Who, who, you know, lost that U.S. Senate race but has had great success running for, for, for Secretary of State. So. Interesting aside, speaking of Robin Carnahan, she says that the special election to replace Joanne Emerson will cost about a million dollars. Mm-hmm. That doesn't include the special election that would take place if if the lieutenant governor needs to that be That would be even more because, because it's, it's statewide. A statewide. Yeah. Yeah. Now, probably what they would try to do, if they could, is pair it on. There, there is normally a scheduled June election. I mean, that'd be one. I or, mean, I'm just theorizing. You know, but going back to Jones for a second, because I've been kind of, as kind of an, an, an aside, the, the, the House speakership, people who have held it for the last few speakerships, generally have not been able to move into other offices since Kenneth Rothman did it in the 1980s. Uh, For for example, obviously Bob Griffin fell from grace and I think went to prison. Steve Gall lost two different elections. Including Um, for Secretary of State back in 2000. Jim Crider couldn't even win a state Senate seat. Rod Jetton obviously didn't pan out. Uh, Catherine Hannaway didn't pan out. The only person who's moved on to something else is Ron Richard because he aimed for an extremely Republican state Senate seat. So, you know, that that sort of speaker's curse, which I like to call, has been broken. Yeah, that's a good But um, And, you know, I think Steve Tilley, if he had run for lieutenant governor, probably would have been favored in that race. But, you know, that has to be just because somebody is the Speaker of the House doesn't necessarily parlay into another office depending on what the office is. And for something like that, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of interest among Republicans, you know, people who pop into my head, Tom Dempsey of St. Charles, Brad Lager, who ran yes. against Kinder last time, um, and people who who are, might be in the Senate who may be interested in that. But not to, 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 to say that Jones wouldn't be formidable. I mean, he's a he, he can raise a ton of money, and obviously he's been kind of going around the state as 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 majority leader and house speaker for the fa- past few years so he's already a pseudo statewide figure in that respect so not to say that he wouldn't be a good statewide candidate i just want to point out that just being house speaker is not a a, a immediate leapfrog to other offices yes and i think so but but again it was refreshing in that he was very upfront about mm-hmm. a his interest and b this is the way uh, general assembly might try to go about it so um it was that was um, right. good. It just goes to show, uh, as a reporter, sometimes just being there, um, you can get stuff. I will just say generally, you know, I've asked Tim Jones to opine on some issues that 
were pretty controversial and not always flattering toward Republicans, and almost all always he's been willing to talk about them and give his side of the story. So hopefully that continues when he's speaker, and um, he's definitely an intriguing political figure. Yeah, well, and, and, and he was also up front in that story that he plans to go after uh, labor yeah. early right. on. Right. And that he acknowledged that they probably can't get right to work through, but that there's certain aspects of right to of the so-called right to work law, which would bar requiring uh, uh, people to pay dues if the majority in their uh, in their yeah. em- employment vote to join a union. Uh, what what he is proposing is that there is one bill that's been floating around in various states that would bar uh, payroll deduction of union dues. Um, even, even if the employer and the union agree to it, they, that, that would bar it. And uh, that's often seen as a way to sort of defund unions. And he's up front that that's something they're going to push. Sure, sure. So he's saying right to work probably couldn't pass right now, but provisions of but it. main provisions and main tenets of right to work yeah, I'd be, could. I'd be very surprised if right to work had made it through simply because, yeah. number one, there are Republicans in both chambers who, as Joe wrote about, were endorsed by the AFL-CIO the last election. And more importantly, in the Senate, there are going to be senators who are going to filibuster until they pass out, especially on the Democratic side if that came out. Gina Walsh of Belafonte Neighbors told me explicitly she will fall on her sword to make sure right to work doesn't pass. And I believe her because the late she used to be in – uh, uh, in, in a labor union. She has strong ties to them, and she's not the only one. So I think in order to get it through the legislature, it would have to serve, get a PQ through the Senate, and then it would have to get a veto-proof majority. I just don't see it happening. I just think it's not very, this session. I just think it's a very difficult thing with the Democratic governor in place. Well, let's bring it back home a little bit. Jason, what would the arch tax do? Well, it would not create Arch Deluxes to come back to McDonald's, I can tell you that. Anyone remember Arch Deluxe? I do not. Nobody? I'm the only person who remembers that. Describe it to me. It was a it was a hamburger. So uh, was it a great hamburger though? No. Oh, not okay. at all. all right. Um so this has been kind of floating around for the last few months because it had to go through the legislature before it got to the municipal level. And it's it's kind of a controversial not a controversial Although I guess it is stoking some controversy. I was going to say complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Explain that. It's a multifaceted sales tax. Some of it goes to local parks in in, um, St. Louis City, St. Louis County, and St. Charles County. Some of it goes to trails. And then a lot of it goes to this project to refurbish the St. Louis Arch. And in order for it to become effective, it has to pass in two out of the three of those jurisdictions that I mentioned, St. Louis County has to be one of them in either St. Louis City or St. Charles. My guess would be that St. Charles, it's going to have a very difficult time of, of passage just because traditionally St. Charles has not bought into some of the major cross-county things like Metro or the Zoo Museum tax. Um, and you're shaking your head, Joe. Is, is yes. am, I, am I wrong on that? Okay. No, no, no. You're right. You're yeah, right. Yeah. You're right. But it's First, going through the city for procedural reasons, there was a there was a committee hearing yesterday. Um, where, Very short one, right? no, like about uh, two or three minutes. No, I and I will I will admit that after four hours of listening to this, I was getting a little frustrated with with the length of it. Even though I'd been you know fine with other meetings, this one just seemed uh, you know very long for a good reason. It's a it's an important 
question of whether you're going to fund um, the improvements around a national park. Apparently, that's never been done before, that a sales tax goes towards something like that. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of different arguments for and against this project. But I think at the crux of whether people vote for this, especially in place like St. Louis County, is going to be, should citizens use a sales tax to fund a project like this? So, well, well in, the, in the county, as you reported a little over a year ago, there was that proposal by uh, County Executive Charlie Dooley to reduce funding of the county parks. The county, St. Louis County, has a rather massive it's uh, huge. They uh, have parks park system. Yeah, they even have a wildlife preserve, basically. Yeah, and he was proposing closing some or talking about closing some. And it caused basically riots in, in Clayton. I mean, yeah. not riots. I don't want to say the opposition was violent or anything, but they were very Emotional. passionate yes. about so, against it. And this... This this would bring money towards the park system, so that might be an intriguing element for, for St. Louis County. But if you're a county voter and you're wondering should some – it's not a huge amount of money. I think it was said at, if you spend $10, it's $0.02 cents or something like that. But there's there's a lot of other things that people have to pay sales tax for. I think right. the sales tax in the city is already very high. and. You know, I, I, I there was also questions on whether the Arch, I always get the, the name wrong, City Arch River, which is the private entity Correct. that's raising a lot of money. Yes. There are questions of whether there was enough oversight over that because it's a, a private entity. And the proponents say that since Great Rivers Greenway is administering a lot of this money, that that question of oversight is, is kind of dealt with already. But, you know, it's gotten through this step, this step in, in the city. It'll go before the full board, I think, after the new year. And my guess would be it probably will be on the ballot in the city. But the bigger question is going to be how it manages to get through in, in, in St. Louis County. Because if it goes down there, it's not going to happen, period. Yeah. So. And in the city, the mayor's office has been saying that um, the reason that they're seeking this is because while the arch is like a wor- world-known icon, Almost, I mean, not, I mean, well, on the same level as the Eiffel Tower, it's as far a, as I would say, it's well known. But, the world. but their point yeah. is, they say that the, the they say while the arch itself is world class, the grounds around it aren't. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, and this is this has been talked for decades, and there have been various efforts. In fact, yeah, Tom Villa, who I guess used to be the the president of the, the board, board of, of Aldermen, Alderman, yes, and back is now, in the nineties, and is now yes. back because I think either his. One of he he came in in a special election. Yeah, he basically had uh, some initial misgivings about it, but going back to decades as he's been in the city, there's never been an opportunity like this where they would actually spend money to refurbish. They've always talked about right. it, according to him, but they've never actually taken any action, which is one of the reasons he voted to let it go through the process. So, I mean, it it, it is it is going to be an interesting thing to watch for sure. Well, that just about does it for the Politically Speaking podcast for today. Thank you for joining us. You can find all of our stories at beyondnovember.org. I am at stlpublicradio.org. Joe and Jason are at stlbeacon.org. You can follow me on Twitter at, at csmcdaniel. You can follow Jason on Twitter at... J. Rosenbaum. And J. Manis. That's M-A-N-N-I-E-S. So thanks for tuning in from Eureka, and we'll be back next week. Until then, so long. So long. Eureka! <laughs>